Live from beyond the Beltway, this is Bruce Dumont with our weekly analysis of national politics, featuring occasional injections of rumor and innuendo, all offered up by our panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, public servants, professors, and most importantly, plain-speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight, featuring commentary by Russian expert Art Sear from Carthage College. Libertarian Eric Cohn, Director of Communications for Action Institute in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And Democratic activist Tom Oster. And a little bit later on, we'll be joined by Dan Rowan. He is with Transportation uh, Topics. And he will join us from Washington, D.C. and bring us up to date on the, uh, all the things that are happening with the supply chain and, and the trucking and communications in the United States. Nice to have you with us. And uh, we're going to begin with you, Art. Nice to have you back. It's been several months since you've been on the program. Nice to have you with us. Uh, your friend Vladimir Putin is keeping everybody on edge. And I know you have uh, followed his actions, uh, dubious as they are, uh, for many years now. My question to you is, the United States and President Biden and, and the West seem to be raising the possibility of a, of a likely invasion. Now, maybe as early as this week. But the president of uh, Ukraine, Mr. Zelensky, he's sort of downplaying it. And, and I'm wondering if you can kind of explain to us why each leader may be doing what they're doing for their domestic uh, followers. Well, we don't know what Putin and the Russians are going to do. I think the U.S. has a strong interest in maintaining alliance coordination, and partly for the and President Biden has a very strong interest in recovering from the disastrous Afghanistan withdrawal for which he is responsible. And I think that the White House is most anxious for those reasons to emphasize unity and and um, underscoring the risk is one way of doing that. Why would Mr. Zelensky sort of poo-poo that idea? He's, he's dousing those, that idea. Why? I'm not entirely sure. Despite your kind words, I'm not an in-depth expert on that part of the world. I do believe he has an interest in maintaining the status quo rather than fighting the Russian army. But I also think I know enough to be confident that Western Ukraine will fight. It's very different from the East in terms of overall outlook. Mm-hmm. Uh, also joining us this evening is Tom Oster, making your first appearance on the program. Nice to have you with us. I'm uh, delighted you, to be here. You're, you're sort of the plain-speaking Americans from coast to coast. You're a Democratic <laughs> operative, and uh, we'll hear from them on the phone as well. But uh, what, what's your take? Do, do you, uh, when you're talking with your friends, be they the, 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 the political junkies or uh, your neighbors next door, are they talking much about this? And uh, what are their concerns about uh, U.S. involvement uh, in this conflict or potential conflict? So I'm sure it's not surprising that when you're talking to regular voters, knocking on doors and what have you, that Ukraine is not a top issue for them. That being said, obviously, nobody wants a war um, in any part of Europe (laughs) Mm -hmm. or anywhere in the world, for that matter. Um, And the dangerous situation that is currently extant there is really troubling. I mean, you have Russian forces now on three sides of Ukraine, in Belarus, Russia, and I'm hearing now that there are forces in Moldova. Uh, and I haven't heard that. You heard that one? It was on uh, okay. Face the Nation so. or Meet the Press, okay. one of them, whichever one wasn't preempted for the Super Bowl today. Okay. Right. Uh, Meet the Press. And it's deeply concerning that someone who is as 
uh, in a position with no boundaries like Vladimir Putin mm -hmm. is now in a position to start a major land war in Europe. Uh, let me ask Eric Cohn. Eric Cohn joins us from uh, his uh, home in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan. Eric, nice to have you with us. Uh, what's your take on the, on the differing uh, um, alert signals that are being sent by President Biden and uh, to some extent, uh, you know, dampening uh, of those comments uh, by, uh, by the president of Ukraine? has messaging inconsistencies. That seems to be something that has been true throughout the uh, first year of the Biden administration. Joe Biden has this weird thing where um, that press conference that he had for his one year anniversary of his, uh, uh, his presidency, mm -hmm. where he plays political analyst rather than president of the United States, where he talks about, well, Putin might do this or he might do that. And this is in his interest, but we don't think this would be a wise thing for him to do rather than doing what the president of the United States should be doing, which is projecting leadership and projecting a consistent message and telling Vladimir Putin quite clearly that uh, launching another invasion of Ukraine after they already annexed the Crimea area uh, is not a wise thing to do. And the inconsistency that you're hearing from Joe Biden, I think, just encourages Vladimir Putin to think he can probably win what I think what he's probably really after here, which is more concessions from the West, from NATO, and from the United States. He gave up in, in, in the press conference, though, he was very strong about, uh, about the Nord Strand uh, pipeline. He said, mm -hmm. it's not going to happen. And the reporter said, well, how are you going to use it? It's not going to happen. But, you know, the president of Germany was 15 feet away, and uh, he, was, uh, he sort of avoided that question. I mean, was that a mistake? Let me ask you this. Was that a mistake by Biden or was it a mistake by uh, the president of, of, of Germany? I think that Biden is right that it should be a, a priority for, uh, for the West, that that Nord Stream pipeline doesn't happen. But here you get to the problem. What does Joe Biden have as leverage here? I don't know what he has as leverage. And he has an inability to answer the question when he's asked, well, what are you going to do to make sure that this isn't going to happen? He doesn't have an answer there. And, and frankly, you know, the United States own reticence to encourage nuclear power here. We should be encouraging development of nuclear power. We should be encouraging exports of natural gas that we have in the United States over there. Um, as a means of not getting the Germans to buy in on Russian gas. I mean, that is a huge vulnerability if that pipeline is created. But I don't see what Biden's plan is here, and I don't see what his plan is in this situation overall. Art Sear, do you see a plan there? I think the administration has been, they've certainly talked tough, which is the right thing to do. They're coherent. Uh, the President of the United States stands on top of not only a great country, but the most powerful and rich economy in the world including an enormous increase in net petroleum and other gasoline product exports, a sea change strategically in our previous position. So we are in a position to make up for whatever uh, natural gas and other um, fuel that might, might, might not be available from Russia. And in fact, our exports to Europe have grown exponentially just in recent months. We are a very powerful economy. Russia. Putin is a very skillful leader, but his, his hand is weak. Russia is a very weak economy. What w w would... I hope that's would, clear. Would that situation change, however, if there was, if there was combat, if there was combat going on between uh, Russia and Ukraine? 
I mean, would, would the United States be able to continue with they would they be able to continue to import uh, energy to Europe, or would there be a military attempt to stop that? Well, if uh, you're talking to a man or, or woman or anyone who says that a war is going to be manageable or predicts what's going to happen in a war, you are talking to a fool. So I'm not going to predict the future, especially concerning a possible war. But Ukraine is not a major transit point for U.S. US commerce. It is for Russia to a degree, despite the current crisis. Okay, we've got to pause. 1-800-723-8289. What are your thoughts? Is anybody in your uh, sphere of influence, are they talking about this issue or not? What are they talking about? This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, We'll probably stay together. Probably? (laughs) It's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, Okay, tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and Ad Council. One in three adults has pre-diabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has pre-diabetes, with early diagnosis, pre-diabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has pre-diabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. (gasps) Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. 
Bruce Dumont back, and a question to you, Eric Cohn, in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan, this evening. Um, if this situation is has escalated between now and the midterms in November, and there's actual fighting going on and, and the U.S. troops that are there, let's say there's no further uh, involvement of U.S. troops other than was the number that's there today is the same number that's there on Election Eve. Does this situation help or hurt Joe Biden? I don't know that it makes much of a difference one way or the other, unless you're going to get the United States involved in some kind of a full-scale ground war uh, defending Ukraine in their fighting on behalf of Ukraine against Russia. I don't think it is going to overwhelm the other primary issues in this upcoming election, which are, to me, going to be twofold. They're going to be the economy, the 7.5% inflation number that we just got, uh, continuing to see inflation go up, while the Biden administration and Democrats in Congress are continuing to press for more and more spending, which will make the problem worse, is going to be the number one, uh, one of the two key issues. And the other one is going to be COVID policy. And I just can't see, short of somehow the U.S. getting dragged into a full-scale Iraq-like war, you know, two, circa 2002 Iraq war, that it's going to be a huge issue for the American people. Now, whether or not it should be is a different question. I think this is an incredibly important issue, but I just don't think it's going to resonate with voters short of it becoming uh, truly catastrophic. Tom, what's your answer to the same question? Broadly speaking, uh, I think that my answer would be similar to Eric's. Uh, I don't think that it is a an issue that is front of mind for most Americans, especially when it comes to the midterm. Uh, like Eric said, it no, but is, would he be... Would, would Joe Biden be seen as a strong leader? Oh, now, again, the, the, uh, the invasion is going to take place. Mm -hmm. The fighting between uh, Russia and Ukraine is going to be ongoing. But the United States is still playing its um, role sort of in the rear, in the rear, rear guard. Uh, and they're not much involved, but... Uh, Joe Biden, you know, the old adage is you don't like to change horses or you don't like to vote against the president during times of war. I mean, this would be viewed by some as a time of war. And does that give Joe Biden some extra support from those who aren't the official Joe Biden haters? Does he get some uh, help from that? Sympathy, not sympathy, but support. I don't think unless we're actually involved in the shooting war ourselves that it will count as wartime for most American voters. On the subject of shooting war, we have heard that uh, Russia uh, has, in, is, has thought about uh, you know, false flag operations where they would create a diversion and that diversion would then look like the, the, uh, the Ukraine, the Ukrainians had done something that forced the Russian involvement. My question to you is, in, in, in things like this, Artseer, um, do you think that the Russians conceivably could set up a false flag operation involving U.S. troops wherever they are, even if they're all in Poland? Could they set, set something up that looks like a shooting, shooting has taken place between the United States and Russia, and would that then make Russia want to move further against the Americans, and would it set the Americans up for having to fight more uh, in a combat situation? No. Really? Yeah. I, why, no... Would he, why would he not want to? Why would he not want to do that? 
Uh, why would he not want to shoot well, him? Because, well, because, no, let, me, let me ask the political question. If a situation like that happened, and you obviously just said you don't think it would happen, if it happened, do you think the American people would say, nah, we're not going to get in, we're not going to get involved with this, or would they want to rally? Is this a way to get the American people more engaged in what's happening over there if U.S. soldiers were actually under attack or failed to respond uh, accurately or, or offensively? Uh, to any attack by the Russians. I want to be as helpful and effective as possible. You've spoken at length and made a number of points. You started out by talking about Americans being under fire or killed. I don't think Putin wants that to happen. Okay. And uh, because, partly because he's not crazy. I think if Americans were killed, Americans would want us to react forcefully. False flags setting up a phony situation. It was transparent even when the Germans did it as a big leaf to try to justify invading Poland in September of 39. Even in those days, it was clearly a stunt and a fraudulent action. With 24-7 media, the Internet pervasive audiovisual in our world today, thanks to media people like you, Bruce, yes, I... it's even tougher to try to do what the Germans unsuccessfully tried in 39. I hope that's effective. I hope so. Let's go to uh, line one, where Tom is listening to us in Youngstown, Ohio. Tom, go ahead. You're on the air. Good evening, Bruce. And, and Bruce, and to your guest, I, I, I want to thank all of you for being there tonight live. I, you know, I, I think this country, country at times uh, emphasizes too much uh, entertainment yes. and not the serious issues. <laughs> And, Bruce, I point out, too, uh, before I get to the topic, I mentioned this to Jim Bohannon on his show. I know he is, you've been on his show at times. He told me he was on your show at times. Yes. In this election year, I think it would be relevant, and I think it would be worthwhile for both of you in terms of expanding your audiences if you could go on his show a couple of times and him on your show and discuss politics because, uh, you know, it needs to be done, and, and I think the more people that uh, hear more of the kind of, kind of topics that you have and that he has, uh, you know, the better this country is going to be in terms of election day. Thank you. As far as thank you. Thank you. Let, me, let, me, let, me just, let me just respond to your compliment because I don't want to let those go by. <laughs> Thanks very much for your comment about the program this evening. Jim Bohannon is an old friend. He has been on this program. I have been on this pro, uh, program with him. So whenever he asks, I am available. And, uh, by the way, I thank you very much for being live. We, we, we have been live every uh, – I think we've been live just about every night uh, when there's been a big uh, sporting event of some kind. And, and by the way, I have uh, reached an agreement uh, with Roger Goodell from the National Football League. I will not mention the football game going on tonight elsewhere in this country, and they are prohibited from mentioning beyond the beltway on the game that's going on. There's a football game tonight. <laughs> well, but they he, they What's can't football? mention if you hear any if you hear any reference on that game to beyond the beltway, then he has violated the rule. It's a it's a non compete verbal attempt. <laughs> but thank you very much for uh, for uh, talking about uh, about the fact we're, that we're having this live discussion. But we always <laughs> like to do that. But you've got a question as well, Tom. Go ahead. Well, 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 first of all, I've got some comments here, and I'd like like your guests to respond to them. Sure. Number one, I think Putin's going to win no matter what, because if he gets goes into uh, Ukraine, as he appears to do, um, then 
uh, or at least get some part of Ukraine, then he has already uh, made null and void the agreement that uh, Clinton made uh, with Ukraine back in the 1990s when they gave up the nuclear weapons that we would pr- protect them. Yes. And really, that's already been null and void with the Crimean situation. But um, the, the focus here, I think, is that, mm-hmm. you know, if his argument, and, and part of it I've heard is that um, there's still a lot of mm-hmm. Russian people in Ukraine. In fact, it's, I checked it. It's, it the, the information I have is a little bit dated, about 10 years old, but it's about uh, 18%. Uh, Russians mm-hmm. in Ukraine, of people of, of, right. of Russian mm-hmm. descent, sure. but but in uh, Latvia and in Estonia, it's closer to twenty eight percent, twenty nine percent, which means that two NATO nations may be his next next targets. And and Joe Biden has been signaling that he's not going to go make a war with uh, uh, Putin because he doesn't it's their nuclear power wasn't he, that a sending a signal to china to go ahead and take taiwan because right. uh they're a nuclear power well and, i think and the I like one thing when you when, 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 yeah, i'm going to get let, let them comment on it. but the one thing as as we as we look at that uh map and and fritz was kind enough to put it up for our our video viewers which he'll hopefully he'll do in a matter of seconds but if you look at that map uh you have belarus you have poland uh, and you have Romania as the three, and you also have Moldova, uh, Moldova rather. Uh, those are not countries that you would expect Russia to go into. In other words, you think they, the possibility they would go into Poland? You're talking about Estonia. Estonia isn't even it isn't even on that map. Well, it, they're very close to uh, Russia, the, the, the Balkan yeah. states. And yeah, but, and, yeah. and the thing is that those those two Estonia and uh, uh, Latvia are mm-hmm. NATO nations. Yes, and and they have a again they 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 have an ethnic population that's larger of uh, uh, larger than what Ukraine has of Russians. Well, let, let me ask you this question, and then I'm going to let our guests respond to the question you asked. If you say there is 18 percent. Russian in Ukraine and 28% in uh, Latvia and uh, in Estonia. Well, my, uh, my almanac is saying that. Okay, your almanac is saying that. Now, my question to you is, if there was an invasion, do you automatically think that the Russians in those countries, be they 18 or 28%, are they likely to be pro-Russian? I mean, are, do we have a civil war, civil disturbance issue there? because too many people within the country might not be supportive of the motherland, meaning uh, Estonia or Latvia? I think that's possible, but I think equally, I, I think it had given Putin an excuse if he wanted, if he found success in Ukraine uh, to expand his, you know, making Russia great again, I guess, would be okay. the way of phrasing it. All right, let's, uh, and again, my concern also is China. All right, I want to get... I want to get uh, uh, you know what? We don't have. You you ask the question. We're going to put you on hold because I want to give you a chance to follow up. But uh, we're about to go to a break right now, and I don't want to force Art Sear into having to give an answer in 15 seconds because that's not likely to happen. I want to give him the full time to get his uh, lecture, professorial response together, as well as our other guests. One eight hundred seven two three eighty two eighty nine. Response from all when we continue from Beyond the Beltway. One forty-five over ninety-two. 
180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest and then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it, or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces, just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Bruce Dumont back, and before we continue, we're going to let each of our guests take a moment to introduce themselves. And uh, let's start with uh, Eric Cohen. Eric, tell everybody a little bit about what you do when you're not on the air with us on Sunday nights. I'm the Director of Marketing and Communications at the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty, headquartered here in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Of course, I should note that the opinions expressed by uh, this guest on this program tonight are his own and not those of the Acton Institute. Um, and I would uh, just ask that uh, listeners to this program um, check out uh, thehongkongermovie.com. I know, uh, Bruce, you'd mentioned perhaps we would talk about the Winter Olympics, which, yeah. of course, are going on in China. We have a documentary film coming out 
about uh, Jimmy Lai, who is a journalist, newspaper man, and political dissident, pro-democracy activist in Hong Kong, currently imprisoned by the Chinese. Uh, we're running some advertising for that documentary during the Olympics, but it is a story about uh, his life and his fight for freedom in Hong Kong against the Chinese Communist Party. It's the HongKongerMovie.com to check out the trailer for that film. A follow-up to you before we get into a, a dive into a lot uh, further discussion on the Olympics. What is your assessment? Have you watched much of the Olympics at all, or are you sort of boycotting them? No, I've, I've, I've watched a little curling today. I watched a little uh, hockey. Um, I check in and out of it. Uh, can you make an intelligent assessment thus far of how you think NBC is covering the political aspect of the game? Uh, I saw in the opening uh, ceremonies part of it that they had brought up some of the issues. They talked about some of the human yeah. rights mm -hmm. questions and issues, uh, frankly, human rights abuses. China has been committed. I know that uh, Mike Tirico, who had been hosting that, had been sent back to the United States. Um, uh, frankly, I think it is embarrassing that NBC has agreed to broadcast these games. Not surprising, since I think they bought the uh, Olympics coverage over, I don't know how many years, for $8 billion. There's, as so many of these cases are true, huge financial interests in China uh, that are dictating the way that they're handling this. But, you know, no, I don't think they've done particularly well. I don't think that U.S. athletes should be there. I don't think the game should be participated in if they're in a place like Beijing. But this is uh, unfortunately the way of the world in 2022 is that those things are ignored. Uh, Tom, tell everybody a little bit about your background and that, that will uh, bring you into this discussion of the Olympics. Uh, well, I am, uh, as you said, a democratic political operative. Uh, I work mostly in local races. I have been doing this for a number of years now. And um, I am born and raised right here in Chicago. And You're a political junkie, but you only work for Democrats. Yep. Okay. And uh, were you raised in a Democratic family? I was. Okay. And who, uh, who, were your, who aspired you to do this? Anybody? Um, honestly, in truth, probably my older brother. Uh, I okay, was. so no political figure. Right. Yeah. Okay. Art Sear, tell everybody who you are I teach and your up, background. I teach political economy up at Carthage College in Kenosha, just across the border. I spent two day, decades working with John Riley and other good people to build up the Chicago Council on Foreign Relations in two years in a very challenging and successful uh, effort at the World Trade Center Chicago. Mm -hmm. And now let's get back to the question that was asked by Tom. Do you want to respond to it? I, I said that uh, you needed a little more time to give an answer. Do you have your answer, Art? Well, I'm very glad he raised the question of nuclear weapons. Ukraine gave them up in the 90s with a guarantee uh, from the Americans that they would be protected in the future. I'm very glad that uh, our caller raised the question of security for Ukraine and also larger regional questions. Bill Clinton started, and George W. Bush carried much further efforts to expand NATO right, right up into the Russians' border. A great contrast with the much wiser and successful diplomacy of the George H. W. Bush administration. Regarding Taiwan, I think... Can I ask a follow-up to the question, though? Yeah. If the United States, and it was during the Bill Clinton administration, if they promised that if Ukraine gave up their nuclear weapons, the United States would defend them, are we letting them down? Have we broken a promise? Have we bro broken, was that a treaty? Was that just a presidential uh, handshake? 
I think President Clinton let us down and the Europeans generally down by very casually and rhetorically making statements that came back to haunt him and us. Um, it, it's an important follow-up, though. Thank you, Bruce. If you wonder why North Korea is playing and toying with nuclear weapons and reminding us from time to time that they have them, Ukraine and what happened in Ukraine is Exhibit A as to why other countries would want to develop nuclear weapons. Thank you very much, Bruce. So let me ask you, Tom. Um, Bill Clinton was a Democrat. Mm-hmm. And I just heard Art say that as a Democrat, he made some big promises that he could not really fulfill long term. And he should have never said that because I would I would assume that there are many people uh, living and alive and well in Ukraine over the last 20 plus years since President uh, uh, Clinton made those promises that probably have gone to bed at night thinking that, you know, we're safe. The United States will come in and defend us if we ever need their help. And those people tonight are uh, maybe remembering that and uh, not thinking highly of uh, a promise made by the President of the United States, who was a Democrat. So you want to take that, Mr. Democrat? (laughs) He absolutely was a Democrat, and he did make those statements. I would say that the situation facing him in the mid-1990s uh, vis-a-vis Russia was much different than it is today. I think it was probably a lot easier for him to say, sure, we'll protect you, when looking at a state that had was in the process of turning into this sort of uh, capitalist country while at the same time people like Putin and his oligarchs were in the process of amassing all of this wealth and building their power base. And so it was much easier for him to look at Yeltsin in charge and Russia very weak and say, sure, we can go ahead and protect Ukraine. But this was good a good answer. This very good mis- answer. And don't forget George W. Bush carried the process much further. He so did. it's a bipartisan failure. Okay, good. Good to know. And let's get uh, uh, Eric's response to that. Do you think, I mean, knowing that, uh, do we have an obligation? Do we, do we as, as Americans have an obligation if the President of the United States makes a promise that uh, people expect him to, uh, you know, live up to. I mean, certainly the, the you know, the, 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 Perea, the, the people in Taiwan, they certainly believe when they go to bed at night that the United States will protect them. Maybe. Maybe they're losing that ability to think that way. Eric? I think there is a reality in the American political system that because presidents change because the Congress changes, that there is not always continuity in foreign policy like that, which is a reason why if you wanted some kind of an agreement where if Ukraine gave up nuclear weapons, that the United States would always come to its defense if it needed it, you get that kind of thing ratified through a treaty. But Bruce, you will know this because this is a theme I hit on pretty much every time I'm on this program. Congress doesn't do its job anymore. And you have these agreements that are made by executives and the executives change. And when the executives change, the nature of the agreement or the understanding of it changes. So I I agree the big fear would be that if the United States has made a promise like this and it does not come to the aid of Ukraine, what reason would the people of Taiwan have to believe that if China moved on Taiwan that the United States would come to the aid of Taiwan? I don't know why they would believe that at this point. And it risks making the, whether or not you believe in the wisdom of those promises, it risks making the United States look very much like a paper tiger after 20 years in which we feel that, I think, the decline of the United States as a global power, in which we've seen 
the Iraq war and the Afghanistan war and now the retreat from Afghanistan have severely tarnished the reputation of the United States. It's not a good position for this country to be in. Are we in decline, Art? No, I, I don't believe we're in decline, but I think um, our uh, colleague who just spoke made some very, very good points, including the point about treaty. Uh, we did, Eisenhower did uh, carry out a security agreement with Taiwan, which was not a recognized nation state back then, that binds them pretty closely to us. Um, your other, your other uh, guest also mentioned the importance of history. Uh, we came much closer to the war with China in 55 and 58 over Taiwan than we have at any time since. And I, uh, very skillful management of that, he kept it almost completely out of the news, was uh, is certainly instructive for us today. It did get in the news, and JFK and Nixon, in one of their famous debates, did argue over Quimoy and Matsu. Mm -hmm. We all remember Quimoy and Matsu, of course, the offshore islands that right. uh, were shelled by China. But I want to go back to your comment. You, you disagreed with Eric that the United States might be in a decline. Uh, if, if you're a, a leader around the world, do you think it's easy for them to say the answer that you just articulated? Do they, uh, would, if we asked the leaders of uh, any one of the G8 nations, would they say the United States is in decline? I don't know. They'd have to speak with, for themselves. Well, but, I, what, what do you think, though? I know. I, I understand I, that. Are they're not? No, I, I do not think they would say the United States is in decline because part of their job is being diplomatic and getting along with the United States. Eric, That's a direct answer to your question. I'm not disagreeing with Eric, by the way. Well, I want to know, Eric. Do you think he's disagreeing with you or not? It's okay if he does. No, no, I don't think he's. Uh, I don't think he's disagreeing with me. Thank I, you, I, Eric. I don't even know that I would. Um, my comments may reflect on a lesser state of, uh, of America. I don't know if I would say that it is full on in decline, but let's assume for a moment that it is. I will go back and I will invoke the words of Charles Krauthammer. Decline is a choice. And to the extent that we have conducted ourselves in a certain way over the last, I'd say, particularly 10 years, we can go back and debate the wisdom of the Iraq war and of the, uh, Afghanistan. These are results of choices that the United States have made, that the political leaders of the United States have made. I don't think they've been very good choices. So what, what I think Art is right about is that, one, diplomatically, they would not say the United States is in decline. But I do think that there is a suspicion, and I think you've seen this in certain actions in the Middle East in the last number of years. Ten seconds. Who knows where the United States will be on any given moment because of the changing political circumstances. We've got so a pause. I, I think there's a we've lot got a more pause. The Eric, we got a pause. Back shortly from Chicago. Is that a faucet running? That's not a faucet. That's a river rushing through the forest. Forest rivers provide over 100 million people with clean water to drink. What? I can't hear you because of the vacuum. That's not a vacuum. That's the trees in the forest cleaning up the air we breathe. I didn't know the trees were so amazing. Yep, and the forest gives us shade, trees to climb. That's awesome. Let's go explore some more. Visit the forest today and enjoy all it does just for you. To learn more about the forest and find one near you, go to discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. We all have the ability to touch the lives of those around us. To someone going through a difficult time, a text, a call, or a visit can mean so much. Reach out to the veterans in your life today. Let them know they're not alone. One simple act can make all the difference. That's the power of one. If you're a veteran in crisis or no one who is, 
Visit VeteransCrisisLine.net for free 24-7 confidential support. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. One in three adults has pre-diabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has pre-diabetes, with early diagnosis, pre-diabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has pre-diabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. Bruce Dumont back. Uh, one of the things that I wanted to talk about this evening, and we talked a little bit about uh, the Olympics in the past, but uh, how do you think we've handled the Olympic situation, Art? Should we be there at all? Yeah, we don't want to penalize the athletes. After the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan, Carter and Associates withdrew yeah. us from the Olympics, and that hurt a lot of athletes. I think we're handling it pretty well. We're diplomatically and officially um, uh, keeping our distance from the Olympics. Do you think, no, diplomatically, but again, what about, what about the officially. pictures of, uh, of Xi and, and Putin together? Uh, uh, how, badly, or how badly does that play around the world for the United States, if at all? Uh, Eric, I mean, does anybody uh, out there around the world care if there's these two guys are sitting next to each other at the Olympics and Joe Biden is at home? I don't know that that's resting. Yeah, I don't know that that's particularly the issue. Art is correct that we're diplomatically boycotting it. Um, I, I think that this is it shows the traps that are laid by these international institutions like the International Olympic Committee, that uh, they seem to prefer nations like China because uh, it is easier to uh, get the kind of infrastructure built, unfortunately, because it's a command and control system. Um, and a lot of other nations have realized just how poor an idea it is to host the Olympics. Uh, with all due respect to the great athletes that participate in the Winter Olympic Games, no, I don't think we should be there. That's unfortunate for the athletes, but the unfortunate thing was the awarding of the Olympics to China, not um, you know, not the decision to not participate, given what China is perpetrating on the Uyghurs and on the uh, on and on Hong Kong right now. 
Well, how how do you get the, the, the people of the United States or the people of the world riled up the next time the Olympic Committee gets together and decides that they're going to, you know, pick a pick a city? Uh, Tom, how do they do that? Well, I mean, uh, we're all upset about it now. I mean, the the the, the rallies against this idea, uh, you know, should have been made eight years ago when these decisions were made. I think part of the reason people get so upset uh, concerning which city gets chosen is what Eric was saying about the deep corruption of the IOC yeah. and how bad it can be for your city when the Olympics comes to town. But the the people that are upset about it, like Eric. Where were they eight years ago? Where were they in going to the uh, the Fortune 500 companies, many of which are, are sponsoring these games on television? Where do they go? Do they march around the headquarters of, of Comcast and NBC and say, don't do this? I mean, there is money to be made by them, but again, uh, there aren't enough Americans who care about the Uyghurs or about these other people. I mean, I hate to say it, but the, you know, this part owner of the of the, of the Seattle uh, NBA team, or I guess San Francisco NBA team, the, the the Warriors, he made that comment that people didn't really care about what was going on over there, and uh, you know, they had they handed him his lunch. Now, how do we rile people up when when it's something like that, Eric? Or are we so are we so committed to uh, our comfort creatures and and comforts? That we have as as as, na- as a nation, uh, our creature comforts is what I meant to say. Um, yeah, nobody cares about it, or do they I, I care think, about uh, it? You care about it. I you, care uh, about it. Maybe everybody at this table for, does, but sure. I think if you'll forgive me for a moment for talking my book here, the the documentary I brought no. up is exactly one of the things that we at the Acton Institute are trying to do to draw more attention to what is going on in a place like Hong Kong. I, I really truly want to believe at a time when the American people aren't so insular looking, when we aren't so obsessed with our own dysfunctional politics, that we would have a little bit more moral clarity about what is happening to the people of Hong Kong who have lived as free people for decades and are now having the boot of the Chinese Communist Party put upon them. So I, I unfortunately, I think there's only limited things that people can actually do, but people can do what we're doing here, which is make the argument for why people should care about it and why it should matter. But people care more about money than they do about other people, Art, don't they? I think it depends on the people. Well, are there are there enough no, people uh, who care about people as opposed to profits? I teach political economy, a great benefit for me. Adam Smith referred to fellow feeling. He was not a pure capitalist. And the basic lesson, if you actually read Smith and our Bible, especially the New Testament, is that people count. No, I don't think most people, including most Americans, put money over people. I'd love to hear the reaction of the audience to, to that statement, whether they think that, uh, that money doesn't talk. And, and, and That's not what put, I said, Bruce. I think well, people put human values and morality above money, most people. I hope you're right. I don't think you're right. I hope you're right. Well, I think the distinction, the distinction to be made is that the people who run a lot of these major corporations, entities like the NBA, I think those people definitely see their financial interests. But here, I think here. on a yeah. broad, sweeping here, here. statement like Art made, I agree with him. I think most people are decent. Yeah. Adam I Smith said the well. market is great, business is great. The businessman, be careful of him or her nowadays. That's well, why you need the law. I actually go out and read these classic texts, and you learn a lot. 
I would I would like to know if there's or I would like to see what the reaction in in real sales in, in the profitability between the day that the Olympics end and the end of the year. I'd like to someone I'd like some assessment as to which of those companies that advertised, which ones saw their sales go up, which ones saw their sales go down, and I would like to see then an assessment of, of that. Because our people, when you're spending millions that, of dollars for a TV spot, uh, you expect to be rewarded by that. Are you rewarded? Are you rewarded or are you punished? Eric? I think, I think the key metric that we have in real time is that people are not watching these Olympics. Viewership is yes. wildly uh, down from, yes. from, uh, right. from the previous Summer Olympics point. and from the previous Winter Olympics. So the right. people who spent all of that money, NBC and the advertisers, are not getting the bang for their buck that they thought they were going mm -hmm. to. Well, that's, that's good. That, that, that's a, that is a good point, but we'll see how, uh, how it ends. I'm Bruce Dumont. You're listening to Beyond the Beltway. We have another full hour. In our next hour, we're going to be joined uh, by Dan Rowan, and he's going to be talking about transportation. We say farewell to Eric Cohn, who joins us in hour number one. Uh, Tom Oster and Professor Art Sear will join us as we continue in hour number two. Again, our phone number is 1-800-723-8289. 1-800-723-8289, around the world, and beyondthebeltway.com. That's where you can find us. Not only every Sunday night, all the time, beyondthebeltway.com. Our previous shows are all there, and if you miss one, you've got about 20 years to catch up. Sure. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest, and then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it, or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm gonna make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor, check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces, just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources at aarp.org caregiving.
A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Bruce Dumont back. We continue with hour number two of Beyond the Beltway, and we'll get to our guests in just a moment. But I want to uh, uh, have uh, Fritz is going to put up the uh, the map of uh, Ukraine and uh, Russia. And uh, in the first hour, uh, our guest Tom said that he had heard earlier in the day that uh, some Russian troops had gone into Moldova. Now, you will see, if you're watching on television, Moldova is near the bottom of your screen. Uh, uh, it is to the right of Romania. It is to the left of uh, Ukraine. And I had not heard that news. There's not, like, official news out there, I guess. But there is a, there's a breakaway province of Moldova. It's called Transnista. And it is, it's, it's, the only country that recognizes its existence is Russia. And there are Russians now there, about 1,200 Russians that are there in this breakaway uh, entity of Moldova. But again, that's a country that most people have uh, never heard of, but the clarification is so there are some Russian troops. I, I mentioned that they were just in uh, Belize, and uh, uh, Moldova is to the obviously the, the south of uh, uh, the border, not uh, away from Russia, but still uh, some uh, Russian troops that are there, although it's a, it's a small group. Uh, joining us uh, in this hour is a guest that's been with us frequently. Uh, he is uh, Dan Rowan. He is associate editor of Transport Topics, and that's one of the major periodicals that looks and uh, assesses what's happening in the uh, in the trucking industry in the United States. And given all the problems and, and the controversies involving uh, what's happening with truckers uh, in uh, Canada, who are protesting the mask uh, and the, the, all the, the mandates up there. Uh, we asked him to come back to join us. And, uh, uh, Dan, nice to have you with us back on the program. Good to be with you tonight, Bruce, from Washington, D.C. Very good. My question to you is, um, is there anything that's happening in Canada that might replicate itself uh, with a group in the United States that sees hey, these guys have had some success. They're getting lots of media exposure. Uh, maybe we should try to do something like that in the United States. Any, any, anything well, in the know, water the, out there? Well, you know, there was talk that there was going to be some activity tonight 
at the Super Bowl outside of Los Angeles in Englewood, California. Yeah. And the mayor of Englewood yesterday came out and uh, very forcefully said, if anyone tries to get near SoFi Stadium, uh, we will arrest you. We will take your trucks. The tow trucks will be ready. And uh, so far from what I've been watching of the game before I came on with you tonight and oh. sort of uh, looking at the news and keeping up to date on what's going on, there's been what, nothing. What but, game you know, is there's, there's the possibility that something like this could happen. Sure. Uh, there's a lot of attention that has been brought to this issue, and uh, clearly there are some folks that feel as though it needs to be continued to brought to the public's attention. So, sure, I think there's a possibility, uh, but we don't know. I mean, that's the that as you know with news, we'll we'll keep an eye on it and see what happens over the next couple of days and weeks. But in the you know the, the one thing that I would think about is that uh, in this particular case, uh, whether it's over uh, COVID issues or whether it's mask issues. And it appears, given the actions of Democratic governors last week, that the issue of masks may be, may be waning as an issue since so many Democratic governors have now you know, released the, uh, the, the mask mandate. Uh, it is still alive and well in schools, which upsets a lot of parents. But uh, uh, it seems to me that the governors, be they Republican and Democrat, they've sort of seen the handwriting on the wall and they've started to, to shift. So I, I see that issue perhaps fading from the news. But my bigger, broader question is, uh, if, if you're a trucker or you're you know, in a trucking union or you're involved in trucking, you can see how an organization uh, like those in Canada uh, and I guess they did a lot of this just through social media. Uh, they created uh, quite quite a bit of havoc uh, by joining together well, to they, demonstrate. They did, yeah. so, so my question is, I'm wondering if there's some issue that's on the horizon that we might see that tactic used in the United States. It's, it's, it's entirely possible. But what's interesting about this is that, you know, they're not protesting the... Uh, OSHA rule that went to the Supreme Court and the American Trucking Associations fought against the rule in one six to three at the court back about a month ago. Mm -hmm. They were upset about this rule that Canada had put into place January the 15th that said, if you're a truck driver coming in from the United States or Mexico, you had to show proof of vaccination. And then a couple of days later, the 22nd of January, and I've written a lot about this story over the last couple of weeks, the United States put the same rule in effect that said, if you're a Canadian driver or a Mexican driver coming into the United States, you have to show proof of vaccination. So at the bigger issue, the issue going before the Supreme Court, they won. They won six to three, a pretty convincing victory. Mm-hmm. And the OSHA rule that was supposed to be for com- companies of 100 employees or more, that, as we all know, was taken aside. So there's been a lot of discussion about this. But I've been trying to wrap my head around this issue of the protest itself and the reason for the protest when, to the larger point, they basically won because there is no vaccine mandate for companies of 100 or larger. Mm -hmm. There is for medical workers and for doctors and nurses and stuff. The court kept that in. But with regards to the mandate for companies of 100 or larger, there's no no vaccine mandate that was tossed out by the court. So, like I said, I've been trying to wrap my head around it, and I haven't been able to do that. Well, I mean, that's why I wanted to to make the point that, again, this is not something that I see truckers jumping on right now uh, because those issues are not necessarily germane uh, in in America at the the moment. Uh, 
but as a tactic, well, here's, here's the other as a point, tactic, they can the use point. that tactic the in the future. Right now is, yeah. you know, the economy right now is red hot. We're short about 80,000 drivers in terms of the trucking industry, and anyone with a commercial driver's license, it, it's it, they're golden right now. I mean, they're they're going to get hired, and there's been a lot of discussion about this. But if you're out there and you're seeing the freight rates for both the contract and the freight rate for contract and spot rates that they're getting right now, do you really want to take three, four, five days off to come to Washington and drive around Pennsylvania Avenue and Constitution Avenue when there's a lot of money on the table to be made driving freight, whether it's regional or regional delivery or whatever it is, there's a lot of money to be made right now. So I don't know that it's going to get the momentum that, that uh, maybe in the excitement that it seemed to get up in Canada. I just don't know. This is a great time to be a truck driver. Oh, indeed. It's a wonderful time. I mean, the companies are hiring. Companies like Yellow are hiring. Companies like XPO, they've created their own driving academies. They're trying to, you know, produce a thousand drivers a year and grow their own organically. The federal government in Congress has just passed a law that says that 18, 19, and 20-year-olds under very strict supervision and mentoring and specific type of equipment can get into the trucking industry to drive across straight state lines. So mm-hmm. it's a great time to be in the industry. And a lot of drivers are making a lot of money, 80, 90, $100,000 a year plus. Now it's a, a terribly difficult job to do, but they're making very good money. And the rates, as I said, for both spot and contract rates have never been higher. They're at historic mm-hmm. levels right now. Okay. Dan, stand by. We're going to talk more with you. We're going to bring our guests in Chicago into the conversation, as well as those on the phones, 1-800-723-8289, talking about uh, transportation and uh, the supply chain. We'll get to that as well. Back shortly. One in three adults has prediabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy. Or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has prediabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. (gasps) Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest. And then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it, or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm gonna make it better. 
I'll come back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. Bruce Dumont back. Thanks very much for joining us. And uh, we're going to go back, continuing with uh, uh, Dan Ronan. And uh, let's go to line one. We've got a call from uh, David listening to us in San Francisco. Go ahead, David. Yeah, how are you, Bruce? And, I'm fine. Uh, I, you know, I was interested in this for a couple of different reasons. I've been hearing, you know, that the uh, the companies, the big trucking companies, yeah. are using this as an excuse, basically, to make the whole operation cheaper. Uh, to what, get what, excuse? Use, use what, getting, what excuse? Well, say, for example, robotic trucks, you oh, know, driverless okay. trucks. Okay. And then, of course, uh, putting 18-year-olds behind the wheel. Uh, you know, I've done enough driving up in the mountains to know that that's a real bad idea, uh, much less their homeland security issues. And so it gets into whether or not in the middle of an epidemic, when, uh, you know, the virus can be spread uh, in, a, in a very quick way with truck drivers, if they're essential workers and they refuse, they, they get paid hazard pay, so to speak, for being an essential worker, but they don't want to get vaccinated, they got to make up their mind whether or not they're going to keep that hazard pay. So okay, there's, let's, a, there's a fraud that's going on with this whole well, thing. Let's, let's, let's clarify a few things. Let's go back to uh, uh, Dan Ronan. You, you had uh, several questions there. So let me, let me pick off one. Uh, this caller, David in San Francisco, he's concerned that 18 or 19 year old drivers are too young and maybe too reckless uh, to get behind a big rig, and that the companies okay, good are point. urging this. Uh, already, 18, 19, and 20 year olds are allowed to drive trucks in the state that they live in. They can't cross state lines from okay. Indiana into Chicago. They can't do that, but they can drive from Rockford all the way down to Cairo, Illinois in an 18-wheeler. Okay. This program has very specific, very specific guidelines for training, hundreds of hours of training. They have to be in certain type of trucks that have very technically advanced safety equipment in the trucks. There's a mentorship program with it. Already, 49 of the 50 states in the District of Columbia allow 18, 19, and 20-year-olds to drive trucks. This just allows them to take the freight from Gary into Chicago or to Rockford and do that this is with good. very specific federal regulations. This is a very simple question. 
And uh, we may have some truck drivers listening to the program. We frequently do. And I don't want, I want to preface my question by um, not insulting them, uh, but my question is this. How difficult is it to drive a truck? I mean, you start the, you start the motor, <laughs> you, you check your rearview mirror, uh, and you press the gas, and you make sure you get out in traffic. Pick up the difficulties that the, the profession has beyond that very simplistic observation of what the job is. Well, you, well, you, well, you have 70,000 pounds of freight behind you in the trailer, yeah. and that's, that's where the tricky part is. You know, driving a, a, tr- a truck by itself is not that much different than driving a car, but when you put the trailer on the back of it, then it becomes a whole different ballgame. You've got 53 feet of trailer on the back of the truck, and, you know, you've got wind conditions to deal with sometimes. You've got people in the four-wheeled and the passenger driving community who, I live in the D.C. area, Bruce, I don't need to tell you, there's, this area has got more than our share of knuckleheads in terms of the way we drive on the Beltway, and so you've got people driving in their, you know, their passenger cars, darting in and out of traffic. You gotta remember that stopping a truck, it's not as though you just touch the brake and stop the truck. It takes the length of a football field to stop a 53-foot tractor trailer. It takes the length of a football field to stop one that's going 65 miles per hour if somebody pulls ahead of you and you know jarts in front of you and something happens. So it, it is complicated and you have life and death decisions that you have to make all the time. I mean, I've been in a, I've been in a truck. I've never driven one. I don't have a CDL, but I've been in a truck. I've done ride-alongs with them, and they're very talented men and women who do this, and they're very safety conscious. The ones that I've been with, they're they're professional drivers. Their professionalism is no less professional than what an airline pilot. You said is. you said that you've done a, a, a ride-along with them. I would like, I would love to do yeah. a, a, a ride-along with them. Not on a real long trip, but. Uh, I'd like to get uh, get in that number two seat and and see what it feels like. Is uh, I would learn a lot. I guess the big question is, uh, do you have uh, do you want um, uh, <laughs> knowing the sway of the truck of what's in the uh, in the in the in the back bay has got to be the biggest challenge because there isn't any mechanical devices that are giving you advice. There's not a, a meter that you're looking at. Well, it's just. It, it comes with every experience, well, right? Well, there's analytics and there's there's, there there's are, sensors okay. and analytics that are being there's sensors and analytics that will tell you how the back of the trailer is performing. Mm-hmm. You know, trucks have become so technically sophisticated over the last 15 years because of digitization that there there really are sophisticated folks okay. up like those up in Wisconsin that make Stoughton trailers, one of the biggest trailer manufacturers in the country. These are high tech machines that monitor tire pressure, brake pressure, air pressure, uh, the hydraulics involved in the truck, uh, how your load is loaded. There's a lot of sophisticated electronics and digitization in the back of those trucks that give the drivers input of how things are going back there. So when someone hears that a truck driver makes uh, $100,000 to $125,000 a year, uh, they should not look at that uh, in an envious way. They've got a very tough job. They've got a very tough job, and especially the drivers who do long over the road, you know, driving. Well, let's say they're driving from Baltimore to uh, uh, Des Moines, and, you know, they do that in a day or two and then come back. That's tough work. I mean, they're sleeping in a sleeper berth that's, you know, two, three hundred square feet 
back behind the uh, behind the you know driving cab itself. Uh, you, you know, you've got to take a shower at a public uh, truck stop or something like that for your your hygiene. Uh, it's a tough route, route, and that's one of the things that's causing the driver shortage is that more drivers want to be home every night. They want to spend time with their wife and kids or their wife or their husband and their kids, whatever the case may be. And the fewer drivers want to mm -hmm. be that, you know, that lonely guy out on the middle of the night driving, you know, 10, 11 o'clock at night to get to their destination. More drivers want to drive regional, and that's what's happening to the entire economy mm -hmm. with distribution centers and warehouses and Amazon and all these things that have taken place over the last three, four, five years. The one thing that you said a couple of times ago when you were on the program, you mentioned that uh, drug laws <clears throat> have also made it difficult for a lot of people to get jobs because the drivers don't pass the drug laws of the state because of testing. As, can you elaborate on that and how, how bad sure. is that problem still? Well, there's a, there's a federal program called the Drug Clearinghouse. And what it is, the clearinghouse <clears throat> says if you're a driver going from company A to company B, you're changing jobs. Before you get the job at company B, you're subject to a mandatory urinalysis test. If you test positive for barbiturates or alcohol uh, or marijuana, that's one of the keys right there. Mm -hmm. You are disqualified for the test and you've got to go into a program to show that you can be, you know, sober, especially with marijuana. We've got now more than 24 states that have legalized marijuana in one form or another, and the federal requirements are very specific. You can't smoke pot and drive a truck, and there's no commercial test available like there is for alcohol where you go into a breathalyzer test and it can pretty much pinpoint within a couple of hours how many drinks you've had. We don't have that for pot. So if you smoked a pot or you've had an edible, it still may be in your system two or three weeks after you've been using. That long. You go change your job, you go to the new company. And we've lost about, about 100,000 drivers who have changed jobs or they've had, you know, subject to routine urinalysis tests that they would as the course of their employment. And they've failed the test and they're now in this limbo, this probationary status until they go back in and re-enter the program through some sort of drug counseling, alcohol counseling, whatever the case may be that their doctor recommends. How is the supply chain crisis compared to where it was two months ago when you were last with us? A little better. I mean, we got through Christmas. We got through the holidays pretty well. Uh, it was a record season for retail. Uh, the National Retail Federation reported, you know, number of like a 13% year-over-year <laughs> increase. MasterCard and Pulse said it was about 9%. You know, pretty much the gifts got to where they needed to get to. There were some hiccups along the way. It wasn't perfect, but, you know, my family had a great Christmas. I'm sure yours and the other guests had a good Christmas as well. So things got there, but we still have container ships at the Port of Los Angeles and Long Beach that are stacked up. We still have some problems in the supply chain. One of the things we need to be watching for this summer is that the longshoremen out of those Southern California ports have got a contract that's going to be coming up. Uh -oh. And these are going to be tough, difficult <clears throat> union negotiations as they always are. So we got to keep an eye on that because that could, that could go sideways. And if that goes sideways, it's going to, it's going to create some big headaches. Mm -hmm. Art Sear, uh, I was watching you as, as uh, Dan was explaining uh, 
the uh, the trials and tribulations of being a truck driver. That sounds like a rough job. I can't see you out there in a big rig. Very hard work indeed, and those men and women earn their pay. Yeah. Uh, in academia, where I work in a privileged way these days, uh, what they call gender issues are a very important topic and one involving a lot of diplomacy. Is the proportion of female drivers growing, you think, or not? And given the labor shortage, it's getting a little better. It's about it's, it's about eight percent. It's gotten a little bit better. The the, act, the activity level certainly got higher. There's actually groups out there called Women in Trucking, which is a very active group that uh, is involved with trying to recruit women for not just driving positions but management positions, dispatchers, folks in the back office. Mm -hmm. So they're Great. trying to encourage them to get into logistics and trucking. And it's a very visible organization. And uh, Ellen Boyer, who runs it, does a great job. Okay, we've got a pause. Dan Rohn has joined us. He's with Transport Topics. He joins us from inside the Beltway tonight. Our guest on Beyond the Beltway, I'm Bruce Dumont, along with Tom Oster and Art Sear. We will continue shortly from Chicago. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and Ad Council. One in three adults has pre-diabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has pre-diabetes, with early diagnosis, pre-diabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. 
Wait, did they just say one in three adults has pre-diabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke anime Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. From coast to coast and border to border around the world at beyondthebeltway.com, you are now listening to Beyond the Beltway, now in our 44th year on the air. And we just keep rolling along like all America's great truck drivers every Sunday night. And we're talking about that uh, position with uh, Dan Ronan. He is associate news editor of Transport Times. He also has his own program on Sirius XM Satellite Radio. And he does a terrific job of uh, updating us and updating the, the trucking industry about uh, uh, everything that's happening on their plate. Tom Oster also joins us. He's a political operative here in the Chicagoland area and Art Seer. Uh, he is the A.W. Clawson Professor of Political Science at Carthage College in beautiful Kenosha, Wisconsin. And uh, we have a caller on the line from McHenry, Illinois. Uh, go ahead, uh, John. You're on the air. Yes, good evening. Uh, my question is for Mr. Ronan concerning the challenges of trucking and particular owner-operator, independent contractors, and the focal point right now is the state of California and the AB5 law. Absolutely. And understanding is the, mm -hmm. the U.S. Supreme Court is going to weigh on this. There's been various court decisions citing the uh, Federal Aviation Administration Act of 1994. And does Mr. Ronan have any uh, latest on, has the Solicitor General issued any kind of a report for the Supreme Court to rule on, on trucker classification? I got ahead of your caller. He really knows the issue and you really understand it. And especially the nuance of the FAA being involved in this. It's a very complicated story, Bruce. But basically what it means is the California legislature <clears throat> passed a law. It was in reaction to Uber and the independent contractor issue, the classification of how they classify their employers, whether they're independent contractors or whether they are employees. It's been applied to the trucking industry. There are a lot of truck drivers who want to drive as independent contractors because they can set their own schedule, they can declare what freight they want to take, what freight they don't, and they don't have to be tied to a specific company. State of California wants them to be classified as employees for the purposes of health insurance, for benefits, things like that. So yes, it's working its way through the courts. I'm unaware if the Solicitor General has weighed in on this, but I'm pretty sure that because several different circuits of the court system at the federal level have had differing opinions on this. This stands a real good chance of going to the Supreme Court. As a matter of fact, I talked just the other day with Sean Yaden. He's the CEO of the California Trucking Associations. And uh, Mr. Yaden and I were chatting about this. And he's one of the people that's involved in this lawsuit, the California Trucking Association. He's pretty convinced that the Supreme Court, in order to make some sort of a ruling that complies for the entire country and not just one circuit or the other, that this will eventually be decided by the Supreme Court. They'll probably decide sometime this summer to take up the case. And then like anything with a court, it's just a question of when they get around to it. You know, they, they get 3,000 requests 
for cases a year and they handle less than 100. But there's a pretty good mm -hmm. chance this is going to end up before the, the Supreme Court. Does, uh, does the FBI have any jurisdiction uh, with truck drivers? Not to my knowledge, no. You know, unless they did something that was criminal. Mm -hmm. uh, not to my knowledge, no. Everything, everything in terms of regulation with truck drivers is through the Department of Transportation and an agency called the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration. It's uh, under the the secretary under Secretary Buttigieg's uh, purview. Okay. All right. We have a question also from uh, uh, Tom, who's here. Oster, Tom Oster. Yeah. So uh, I remember reading. Dan, uh, a few weeks ago, that one of the issues that truckers were facing in terms of making, you know, it, it ties in with having to drive long distances and getting paid is like when you arrive at a port and it takes, let's say, with the supply issues, 10 hours to load your truck up, you're not getting paid for those hours. Is that correct? Yeah, you're on, you're on, du you're on duty. Some companies pay by the hour, but it's not a lot. But for the most part, you, you know, you're only getting paid if the wheels are rolling. <clears throat> so if you're sitting in a queue waiting to get a load and you're not moving, you're not getting paid. You're just sitting there, just sitting there waiting to get, to get up a load and, and go out the door. So that's one of the issues. Now, a lot of companies have, some companies have gone to some sort of a hybrid pay where they'll pay you X amount of hours you know, per week for your sitting time or they'll pay you an hourly rate if you're not moving. And that's starting to become a little bit more of a, of a, uh, a part of the way the industry's moving. It's not widespread, but some companies are doing it because as we go back to this issue, the, there's such a shortage of truck drivers that the companies have to do something. If one company does something to make working conditions better for their guys in order to keep their employees at the other company, they've got to leapfrog over that and do something to make their working conditions better. All about making working conditions better for people. Yeah. Uh, well, and that's 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 <clears throat> something the drivers talk about all the time is that they want better working conditions. And Secretary Buttigieg has talked about this pretty openly about saying that we need to make you know we need to make sure that there are adequate places for them to take care of their sanitary needs, to be able to take a shower, to get a hot meal, to be treated like uh, first class citizens with a certain degree of dignity. You know, when COVID started two years ago, two years ago, I, I shudder to think about that. There were two years into this thing now. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of rest stops closed down. A lot of states closed their rest stops. A lot of, uh, you know, privately owned truck stops uh, would only do uh, carry out where you could pull up mm -hmm. and grab a meal and go. You couldn't go inside. That's changed. But we still have to treat these men and women with a certain degree of dignity. It's gotten a little better, but there's still a long way to go. Are there sec uh, within within the states? Obviously, there may be different people involved in in the treatment of of truckers. But is it generally the Secretary of State? Is it the is it the Tourism Bureau? I mean, who operates these uh, uh, you know rest stops and also uh, uh, the weighing stations? Is that done? Well, the weigh stations, level? like most, for the most part, the weigh stations are run by <clears throat> the State Department of Transportation, TxDOT. Mm -hmm the Illinois Department of Transportation. Your licensing and the commercial driver's licenses usually come out of the Motor Vehicle Division, which is under the Secretary of State's mm -hmm. office, in your case, the state of Illinois, Bruce. And mm -hmm. uh, so that's how that's run. So it's a little bit, you know, in some states, uh, the Department of Natural Resources, uh, I know of a couple states that they run the 
they run the rest stops, the, the natural resources, because they might be near a state park or something like that. So it's kind of a mishmash, but uh, it's, it's state government to one degree or another. How do they determine what, when someone goes uh, on one of the way scales, how do, do they determine uh, how much uh, they have to pay in taxes? Obviously, it's based on weight, but uh, how, how, how does what is on that truck, how is it transmitted to someone that's going to send the bill to the president of that trucking company and say, you owe us you know, X hundreds or thousands of Through dollars this. for using our highway? Through this, it's 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 most what? of it's done Is now. That a, a most cell phone? of it's done now with <laughs> apps and the like. Oh, really? And, and the like, and there's actually there's apps that can uh, can set you up so that you don't have to go through the way station, uh, which is another thing that drivers like because you know they declare that they're carrying <coughs> seventy three thousand pounds of flat screen TVs. It's already on there. They've already set it up, and it's already been taken care of through through the apps. And you hear ads all the time. For these various apps, various uh, programs, you know, want to skip the way stations, uh, sign up for this, and, and it's become pretty common. Okay. And a lot of way stations are closed. There's one actually not far from my house, just three miles from my house, and it's never open. I mean, it's I can't recall the last time that it was open. I mean, months ago. Okay. So like everything else, or most everything else in our lives, it's a, there's an app, and it's it's tied to your your smartphone. Yeah, yeah, and it's and it's all and and the companies have such amazing analytics these days in terms of knowing what's in their cargo, what's their uh, they 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 have a pretty good knowledge of you know before that truck moves an inch, how much it weighs mm -hmm. and what you know what the truck's final weight is when it rolls out of a distribution center. And they know how long it should take the driver to get from point A to point B, so drivers aren't getting lost. Yeah, or exactly. Taking the the slow way home. Exactly. There, there's. Yeah, and, and exactly. And there's all sorts of, there's hours of service rules. I couldn't even begin to get into that in just the time we have. There's very specific hours of service rules that regulate how many hours they can drive in a period before they have to shut down, how many hours they can drive consecutively during the course of the day before they have to take a break, a mandatory 30-minute break, break. There's all sorts of rules and regulations and minutia that they have to comply with. Mm -hmm. And though, and this is all part of the and it's all done uh, training to be all, all done. And say, it's all done electronically. Yeah. So this is uh, again. Yeah. There's it, no more pencil. There's no more pencil. No logs. more pencils. It's all done with. <laughs> it's all done electronically. Uh, the, the pencil logs have been gone for four years. So this is a good job. You got to be smart. It can be. You got to be honest. Yeah. But if you do that, you can make a lot of money. Management. Yeah, I mean, you, you, your, your, your home life probably is going to be wrecked. But, you know, whenever you see a movie about a truck driver, uh, he's always divorced. He usually has a drinking problem and, uh, or a drug problem. I mean, they're not portrayed in a very positive way in, in popular culture. Well, that's Hollywood for you. I mean, and, and, but, you know, you've got to look back, too. For the, for the past two years... We, we've had some inconveniences. We've had difficulties. Yeah. But for the most part, our grocery stores have been full. Yes. Our doctors and our folks at the hospitals have gotten, mm. with some exceptions in the first couple months, they've got plenty of masks. They've got plenty of equipment at the hospitals. The vaccine, the, the, the companies that have been involved in the vaccine rollout, that's all been done with trucks. And it's been a phenomenal job in terms of getting the Walgreens, the CVS pharmacies, mm. all of your doctor's offices, 
ample supply of the vaccine. It's been all done on trucks and it's mm -hmm. been done, you know, some of the vaccines require cold temperatures. The Pfizer vaccine requires super cold temperatures. The trucking industry and the, and the vaccine makers figured out ways to transport that stuff at 60 degrees below zero in a truck. When we come back, Art Sears got some comments for you as well. Tom's got another question or two. I'm Bruce Dumont. Thanks for joining us tonight. Today, millions of people all across America are building a life in recovery from addiction and mental illness, helping themselves and helping each other with friends, family and community lending their strength and support. Join the Voices for Recovery. Together, we are stronger. For 24-hour free and confidential information and treatment referral for mental and substance use disorders, for you or someone you know, call 1-800-662-HELP. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Hi, I'm Dr. Nia Hergaris with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. As parents, we want our children to grow up healthy and strong. That means helping teens take responsibility for their health as they become young adults. One way to do that is to make sure they have one-on-one -on -one time with their pediatrician. That helps them become comfortable talking about any health issue with their doctors and with you. So make sure to give your teen a voice. It's good for their health. For more on teen health, visit HealthyChildren.org. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest and then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. Bruce Dumont back, and uh, we have Art Seer, who has a question uh, for our guest. Uh, Dan, go ahead, Art. First of all, let me underscore for all of us how much more impressed by your knowledge and how valuable this conversation is. My work involves doing some 
long-term research and analysis on regional trends in the Midwest, I was really impressed by the fact that more than half the interstate truck traffic in North America goes through this metropolitan area, including southeast Wisconsin, where I work. My understanding is intermodal is one great source of strength that's growing. We're talking a lot about trucking. To what extent does intermodal, which must be enormously complicated logistically and financially, bear on your own work and what you and your colleagues are thinking about and working on? Well, it's tremendously important, and you're starting to see, you know, there used to be, Art, this trucks and rail were competing with each other. Now they're working very much in tandem, you know, especially in a place like Chicago, which has so much incredible rail activity. Uh, and, you know, down on the, the south side of Chicago, all those rail yards that come in, all of that freight, you can't deliver freight to a Target or a Walmart on a train. It has to get to its ultimate destination through a truck. So you can get it to the rail yard, you can get it to Joliet, you can get it to the uh, you know, BNSF yard in Chicago, but it's got to come out of there on a truck. So there is a lot of coordination. And to, you know, I know we were chatting during the break uh, about the issue of autonomous trucks. Uh, some of the uh, railroads are already starting to wor work with the trucking companies that are moving in that direction with regards to autonomous trucks. There was a recent uh, test of a, an autonomous truck that was running freight in, you know, in Arizona along I-10 with, now they had a, a, an escort truck, an escort vehicle in front and an escort vehicle in back, but it was an 18-wheeler running an autonomous truck down I-10 in, in the Phoenix area, and it was successful. So I think we're going to see more of this, but with regards to the intermodal, the, the, the animosity and the competition is still there, but there's, there's a lot of cooperation between the railroads and the trucking industry to get the freight out of the rail yards and get it to its ultimate destination. How are the unions dealing with this uh, autonomous situation? They can't be pleased by it. Well, I, there's, there's some concern. There, there is concern because, you know, union jobs are very valuable jobs. But then again, it goes back to this issue, Bruce, of, you know, what type of a driving community do most drivers want? Most drivers want to do three, 400 miles in a day and they want to be home so they can be sleeping in their own bed at night. Mm -hmm. And if autonomous trucks in our lifetime can handle some of the long, over-the-road, longer vehicle trips, and maybe a driver is waiting at a location to take the truck the last 15 miles through the city streets of Chicago into its ultimate destination, and that driver does five, eight drives a day with an autonomous truck and just ferries the truck you know, from... Uh, a, a pickoff point, mm -hmm. let's say in Joliet, and takes it into Chicago somewhere. That may be the tr trucking job that he he wants, she wants, and they're home at night. And the autonomous trucks become more of a vehicle that's used on the real long haul, uh, you know, three, four, five, six hundred mile runs, where that is the hardest the hardest work in trucking. Mm -hmm. If there are people uh, who are listening or watching tonight. Uh, that have been intrigued by uh, or sparked uh, by by your comments this evening. Is there a good source where they can go to learn more about the industry, to learn about whether there are internships, whether there are uh, apprenticeships and things of that nature that they could uh, dip their feet into uh, what you have described as a, a grueling, a, a 
It takes a lot of smart people. You got to be smart. You got to be drug free, or at least uh, pass the tests. But uh, it sounds to me that the reward could be very, very great, especially with some of the changes that may be coming on the horizon. Drop me an email, dronan at ttnews.com, and it's d-r-o-n-a-n at ttnews.com. If they want to drop me an email, I'll be happy to point them uh, in any direction I can and you know, connect them with the folks over at the Department of Transportation. You mentioned internships and apprenticeships. Mm -hmm. the, the secretary just a couple of weeks ago announced that they are starting a massive program to get people to get paid apprenticeships to get into the trucking industry. So on day one that you start, your education is paid for. You're getting a salary the first day you're on the job. You got health insurance the first day you're on the job. And so that this is the direction they want to go to try to really professionalize these training academies and bring people in. Uh, one of the problems the trucking industry has had is that it's an older industry. You get people who are getting into the industry 42, 45, 46. Maybe they did something else earlier in their life, and for one reason or another, they decided to change careers. Uh, with this program now that is starting with you know, 18, 19, 20-year-olds, they're going to try to get people who are you know, maybe 17, 18, 19-year-olds to get interested in it because it's a high-tech industry in terms of all of the things that are going on, and there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of growth. I mean, the amount of freight that we're going to move in this country over the next 20 years is going to double. It's going to double. Wow. The, the, the projections already have said that. So we need men and women to be in it to, to move this and to, to get it to where it needs to go. And when you talk about uh, the industry, uh, not, not everything within the industry is on wheels. Uh, there's, there's lots of people behind the scenes that are keeping those wheels running yeah. and picking things up at the right uh, location and making sure they're delivered to the correct location. So there's this, it's almost like a like a you know ice iceberg. I mean, a lot of it's below the the surface. But the uh, oh, yeah. main job, obviously, the the toughest one is the one that gets paid the most. I'm Bruce Dumont. Thanks very much. I, I want to thank our guests, by the way, for being with us this evening. Tom Oster has been with us in studio. Professor Art Sear has been with us in studio. And Dan Ronan has been Transportation Topics. Uh, give me the, the number one more time, your email. dronan at ttnews.com. Drop me an email, and I'll do my best to respond and uh, respond to as many folks who have questions. Very good. Always good to have you. I'm Bruce Dumont. Thanks to Fritz Goldman Thank for their you, assistance in the production of this program. Uh, if you have not watched it thus far, you can now all go and watch that football game that I mentioned before. But don't, again, if they mention Beyond the Beltway, they have violated their agreement. The show is off the air, almost. The game is over, almost. But the last two minutes, that's all that's important in the game anyway. Back shortly. See you next week. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces, just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work. 
but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. One in three adults has pre-diabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has pre-diabetes, with early diagnosis, pre-diabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has pre-diabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest. And then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it, or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm gonna make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor, check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council.